0: in in, uh, speaking one confronts a dilemma relying upon reading from a text that allows for a measure of precision which otherwise it's hard to maintain the presentation almost inevitably is more, uh, more, more stilted it doesn't come across as naturally, it doesn't flow. Usually one opts for the natural flowing presentation. Tonight, due to the sensitivity of the topic, so I, I am going to be relying heavily on the, on the text, I, I apologize in advance for whatever burden that places upon the audience in terms of having to work with me and, and uh, exert yourselves to to stay focused despite the, the lack of, uh, of a free and flowing presentation the, the presentation draws heavily, almost exclusively from, uh, from the Rav's Torah Kodesh Baruch Hu says he's going to remember his covenant, his bris, with the ovos avom, yitzchok, and yakov on, on the threshold of uh, of, of Matan Torah <coughs> HaKadosh Baruch Hu says HaKadosh Baruch Hu sends a message Vaya Moshe I to call yourself Atom Shamoa Tishmu Vakoli Ushmatem Isbrisi Kili Kol and now if you'll comply with my words and you'll observe my birth my covenant so then you'll be cherished you'll, you'll be a treasure for me amongst all the nations for the entire uh, earth is, is mine Rashi says, the bris here, in this pasuk, refers to the bris of Sinai. The Torah refers to it again at the end of the Torah. So we know, in terms of what we're going to focus on, of two different and distinct brisen, two different and, and distinct uh, covenants that HaKadosh Baruch Hu established. as the bris of us, and there's bris sinai. Bris always entails obligations and uh, commitment. So we understand what bris sinai entails, that we accept upon ourselves the tayag mitzvahs. But bris ovos is, is opaque. The only mitzvah associated with, with bris avos is bris milah. And it's clear that the bris mila is intended more as an os, more as a representative sign of the bris, rather than the content of the bris. So wh- wh- what does what, what bris avos entail? So the Rav comments as follows. Bris avos expresses attitudes, ideals, and sentiments. It guides our feeling and consciousness. It's the backdrop of bris sinai. Bris Sinai is the behavioral fulfillment of the truth's values and Jewish self-awareness established by Bris Avos. In other words, Bris Avos consists of core values and attitudes, an approach to life and Avodas Hashem. These values and attitudes obviously have practical, normative, applications and implications to all situations, old and new. In truth, normative, repercussive values are not limited to Burs They are prominently featured in Burs as well. Perhaps the most famous example and illustration is the Ramban's discussion of the <coughs> Mitzvah Sisa HaYosheva Atov, Here's what, in free translation, this is what the Ramban says about the mitzvah of Asisa HaYosheva Tov, doing what's uh, straight and and good. The meaning of this mitzvah, according to Chazal, it's impossible for the Torah to specifically legislate all of a person's interactions with his neighbors and friends. We're finite, so the Torah Shadoshav has to be finite also. There's a... endless number of situations and scenarios which arise in people's lives. So it's impossible for the Torah to specifically legislate all of a person's interactions with his neighbors and friends, all his business dealings and civil obligations. The Torah provides many specific directives such as Los Mecha not to gossip, Losiko not to curse even a deaf person standing up in honor of the elderly and the like then the Torah generalizes and says that we're called upon to extrapolate from these specific directives we're called upon to develop a sense for what is correct and appropriate what, what the Torah considers Yoshevatov And then the Torah generalizes and says that in all matters we must do what's good and straight. And this serves as an overarching imperative which encompasses, among other things, the mandate for pshara, to compromise in litigation, lifnim yishra sadin, to go beyond the letter of the law, to offer the neighbor the right of first refusal, and even Chazal's mandate of dibuah benachas and to speak gently Ramban's compelling value-based depiction of Torah, of halacha is self-explanatory nevertheless in our generation the following needs to be understood, underscored the normative core values of Torah are indispensable in making Torah relevant, applicable, and normative in all times and in all situations. A particular situation or constellation of circumstances may be new and unprecedented, and yet the Torah Hagdosha, through its timeless, transcendent values, contains clear directives. The Torah's account of Briyasa Odom, creation of man, focuses on his defining spiritual, metaphysical quality, Salam It's seemingly incongruous that in the same breath, the Torah mentions the physiological differentiation of masculinity and femininity. The Torah is highlighting Odom as a unique spiritual being. Why in such a context would the Torah mention biological variations of masculinity and femininity? A brief excursus into theology and religious experience Mietz will, HaShem will, will resolve the incongruity. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is of course Echad, HaShem Elokein HaShem Echad, one singular and unique in the simplest and most absolute sense. In speaking of HaKadosh Baruch Hu Himself, we can't speak of different aspects or qualities. Nevertheless, in His interaction with the world, we perceive different aspects or qualities and may legitimately speak in such terms. In fact, the Torah itself does so in listing the Yud Gimel Midas HaRachanin. We perceive HaGadosh who is acting with compassion, grace, etc. Similarly, within our personal religious experience, we also experience different qualities or aspects. Whenever we speak of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we have to bear this crucial distinction in mind. We're speaking of perceptions and experiences, not describing HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself. On the one hand, we perceive and experience HaKadosh Baruch Hu as imminent. He's very much present in the world, but his presence is limited and understated. Otherwise, His presence would simply be too overwhelming. Imagine the moshal of our inability to look directly at the sun. So HaKadosh Baruch is present in the world. We experience His imminence. But that presence is limited and understated. And thus, divine will and providence, masked by Teva, a self effacingly exercised. What's more, we perceive and experience Akkurajbaru as tolerant and passive. He doesn't impose his divine will. Instead, he modestly allows for human free will and quote, suffers, unquote, people's actions, even when Rahmanul Islan they contravene his will and thereby further obscure His presence. Kabbalah teaches that all these qualities associated with HaKadosh Baruch Hu's self-effacing imminence belong to the feminine sphere of Malchus, also known as Shechina. Shechina HaKnosha. On the other hand, we also know and perceive HaKadosh Baruch Hu as transcendent, existing in infinitude, above and beyond his creation. He is, with a capital B, he is being, and as such is the source of all, with a lower case B, being. He's the omnipotent creator whose inscrutable will inexorably governs the world, the ultimate giver and mashbia. Kabbalah teaches that these qualities belong to the masculine, spheres. In the words of the Rav, God is both our father and mother. Masculine and feminine motifs in our approach to and craving for God are of great significance for the understanding of our universal religious experience. The principles of creativity and receptivity, acting and being acted upon, energizing and absorbing, aggressiveness and toleration, initiating and completing, of limitless emanation of a transcendent being and measured reflection by the cosmos are portrayed by the dual motif of masculinity and femininity within our religious experience. Unconditioned, creative, infinite transcendence and self-conditioned, receptive, finite immanence of God are symbolized by masculinity and femininity. We perceive and experience HaKadosh Baruch Hu in maternal terms as loving and comforting, giving and forgiving. But we also perceive and experience HaKadosh Baruch Hu in paternal terms as a demanding teacher and disciplinarian. Once again, in the words of the Rav, both modes of loving, caring and helping are manifested by the Almighty. He is our disciplinarian. The Lord your God disciplines you just as a man disciplines his son. We invoke him as our Vinu Shavashamayim, our father in heaven. Yet we also have trust and faith in him in a manner reminiscent of the child's trust in its mother. In fact, HaKadosh Baruch is our mother. Ki'ish asher imo tanachamen, the novi says, as one whom his mother comforts, so will I comfort you. Every sensitive Jew knows that at times we run to the Almighty for advice and encouragement, like a confused, frustrated, and disappointed child runs to its father, while at other times we cling to the Shekhinah just like a child who in despair hides his head in shame in his mother's lap finding their solace and comfort may we call God both father and mother? certainly yes end quote so the Torah's seemingly incongruous description of Briyasa Sa'odam is now resolved there's both the masculine and feminine Salam Elukim. Zohar Nekeva constitute two Different spiritual personae. Man and woman were created differently, not only physiologically, but also psychologically, spiritually, and metaphysically. They represent and express different facets of tzal elokim. In the words of the Rav, We are are mystified by the inclusion of the physiological fact of sexual differentiation in the story of man created in God's image. It's obvious that the difference between man and woman, Adam and Chava, asserts itself in personality differentiation as well. The spiritual essence of man differs from that of woman. Another quote. The Kabbalah based its doctrine of bipersonalism upon the verse, and God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Sexual differentiation expresses more than a physical property, it manifests an ontic contrast, a dual aspect within the essence of creation, something deeper and more fundamental than natural sexual differentiation which finds its full expression in two bi-existential experiences, in two ideas of personalism. There is of course no hierarchy within tzal And thus, while man and woman constitute two distinct spiritual personae, they are axiologically equal. They possess equal Kedushas Yisrael. In the words of the Rav, there's no doubt that in the eyes of the Halacha, man and woman enjoy an equal status and have the same worth as far as their humanitas is concerned. Both were created in the image of God. Both joined the covenantal community at Sinai. Both are committed to our metahistorical destiny. Both crave and search for God. And with both he engages in a dialogue. The mere fact that among our prophets we find women to whom God has addressed Himself is clear proof that we never differentiated between the sexes axiologically. As a natural expression and vital consequence of their different selim al-kims, men and women are best blessed with different strengths and entrusted with different missions. In the words of the Rav, there's a distinction between mother's and father's mission within the covenantal community since they represent two different personalistic approaches. Father's teaching is basically of an intellectual nature. Judaism is to a great extent an intellectual discipline a method, a system of thought, a hierarchy of values. However, Judaism is not only an intellectual tradition, but an experiential one as well. The Jew not only observed, but experienced Shabbos. The Jew experienced Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. He didn't only recite prayers in those days. The Seder was a great experiential event. There's beauty, grandeur, warmth and tenderness to Judaism. All these qualities can't be described in cognitive terms. One may behold them, feel them, sense them. It's impossible to provide one with a formal training in the experiential realm. Experiences are communicated not through the word, but through steady contact, through association, through osmosis, through a tear or a smile, through dreamy eyes and soft melody, through the silence at twilight and the recital of Shema. All this is to be found in the maternal domain. The mother creates the mood. She's the artist who is responsible for the magnificence, solemnity and beauty. She somehow communicates to him the heartbeat of Judaism while playing, singing, laughing and crying. In his Hasbid for the Talnurabutan, the Rav returned to this theme. Here are his beautiful words. We have two Masaras, two traditions, the Masara community of the fathers and that of the mothers. Kosoma the Ves Yakov Elohanoshim Vesaga Levnei Yisrael Elohanoshim. Shma Bini Musara Vika, hear my son the instruction of your father. Valtitosh Torah Simecha, and forsake not the teaching of your mother. One learns much from Father. How to read a text, Tanakh, Gemara. How to comprehend, how to analyze, how to conceptualize, how to classify, how to infer, how to apply, etc. One also learns from Father what to do, what not to do, what's morally right and what's morally wrong. Father teaches the son the discipline of thought as well as the discipline of action. Father's tradition is an intellectual moral one. That's why it's identified with Musr, which is the biblical term for discipline. What is Torah Simecha? What kind of a Torah does the mother pass on? Permit me to draw upon my own experiences. I used to have long conversations with my mother. In fact, it was a monologue rather than a dialogue. She talked, and I happened to overhear. She talked, me Me'inyana de Yoma. I used to watch her arranging the house in honor of a holiday. I used to see her recite prayers. I used to watch her recite the sedra every Friday night, and I still remember the nostalgic tune. I learned from her very much. Most of all, I learned that Judaism expresses itself not only in formal compliance with the law, but also in a living experience. She taught me that there's a flavor, a scent, and warmth to mitzvahs. I learned from her the most important thing in life, to feel the presence of the Almighty and the gentle pressure of His hand resting upon my frail shoulders. The fathers knew much about Shabbos. The mothers lived the Shabbos, experienced the presence, and perceived her beauty and splendor the fathers taught generations how to observe Shabbos mothers taught generations how to greet the Shabbos and how to enjoy her 24 hour presence the Rav's beautiful stirring words provide a framework to understand and appreciate the words of earlier Chachme HaMasorah Le'on Brachos famously records, O'malei Rav le Rav posed the question to his uncle, to Rabbi Chia. Noshem b'may zachyon. What special merit do women enjoy? Ba'akriye benayuhu lebei knishtah, u ba'asnuye gavayuhu bei rabonon, v'natrin le gavayuhu adorosumi bei rabonon. Rebchia answered, bringing their sons to Yeshiva to learn and sending their husbands to Yeshiva and awaiting their return. Chazal are not referring here to arranging the logistics of Karpul. They also refer to the vital role of mother and wife in influencing her sons and husband, her capacity to motivate, her ability to touch the inner lives and core of her husband and children Rebchia answers that women exert a formative influence by imparting their Torah which inspires their husbands and sons to Talmud Torah this understanding of the Gemara is further borne out by Chazal's comment on the posthok on of Kalsoma Leves Yaakov Vesagi Levnei Yisrael Chazal comment in the Medrash why is Moshe Abenu instructed by HaKadosh to speak to the women first, first to speak to Beis Yaakov, only later to speak to Bnei Yisrael, so that they will assume responsibility to guide their sons to Torah. The theme echoes as well in the words of Rabbeinu Yonah, Why was Moshe Avenu commanded to speak first with the women? They send the children, the sons, to school. They, they, They pay attention. They keep an eye out that they should learn they envelop them nurturingly, with love when they return home. And they inspire them. they motivate them that they should have the desire to learn Torah. Um and they teach them to have fear of sin, and they implant that within them from their very youth. Final representative quote from the Malbin's uh, Perush in Sefer towards the end of Sefer Tiltim. The pasuk says, "Baneinu kinetiyim megudalim bino uvehem, binoseinu kezavios mechutavos tavnas hecho." So the pasuk has an interesting comparison. It compares bino Israel to the cornerstones of a building. So the malbim elucidates the comparison. Binoseinu domim kezavios shehem mechutavos tavnas hecho. The structure of a palace depends upon the correct straight placement of its corners. That's the determining factor. Cain Hain snuos Similarly, Benos Yisrael, a modest, residing at home No one really sees the the cornerstones Nevertheless, they determine the character of the home The overall conduct of the home Reflects their Righteousness The, the Rav's portrait of the feminine Selma al-Kim allows us to arrive at a fuller and deeper understanding of what "sneus means and of what we mean when we identify that as the defining quality or trait of the Jewish woman. Of course, modest dress and behavior are crucial, indispensable expressions of Sneus but they're only external expressions. The fact that a woman's avodas Hashem is concentrated in the private domain of the home is also a key, crucial expression of Tznius. But this too only reflects, but isn't the essence of the Tznius. Ultimately, a woman's Tznius consists of her rich inner life which is hidden from view. And therein lies the ultimate snius, the focus on inwardness and inner experience. Publicity and public roles are antithetical to the feminine Salam Elokim, which is self effacing, which emphasizes inwardness. In Ishot Snua who focuses on authentic inwardness, enjoys a rich inner life and eschews the inauthenticity and vulgarity of extroversion and ostentatiousness, naturally lives self-effacingly and dresses and acts modestly. The Rog further elaborates the strengths of the different Salam kims While intellectual involvement is important, in times of crisis and distress, the experiential commitment is indispensable. Were it not for the mother, the Jews would not have been able to defy and survive so many crises which threaten to annihilate our people. The greatness of the man expresses itself in everyday action when situations lend themselves to logical analysis and discursive thinking. The greatness of the woman manifests itself at the hour of crisis, when the situation does not lend itself to piecemeal understanding, but requires instead instantaneous action that flows from the very depths of a sensitive personality. Hakadosh Baruch Hu gave woman bina yisera, an additional measure of understanding over men. The Rav then illustrates this feminine strength with examples from Chumash. Sari Imenu safeguards Avam Avinu's legacy by demanding the expulsion of Yishmael. Rivka Imenu ensures that the Masorah is exclusively transmitted to Yaakov Avinu, etc. In the Rav's words, the Biblical woman was a dialectical personality. She combined two mutually exclusive characteristics. She was humble and shy, and yet she possessed an indomitable will and an unshakable determination. She was simple and tenacious, meek and fearless. The biblical woman was never at the center, always in the wings. She was never loud, always quiet. At the same time, the biblical woman was the leader and the head of the household. In times of crisis... The biblical woman assumed unlimited responsibilities and made the gravest decisions. Sarah was a humble woman, always in the tent, always shy and modest. Avram sat in front of the tent. She was inside. She was always ready to comply with Avram's requests. And yet, in critical times, when she was concerned over the destiny of her son... The humble Sarah displayed unlimited strength of will and made Avram listen to her. She instructed Avram, Goresha HaOm Hazas V'Ezbinah Cast out that slave woman and her son and HaKadosh Baruch Hu instructed Avom to listen to Sarah. Before proceeding, l- let's pause and, and summarize. In our perception, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is both imminent and transcendent. In his understated immanence, he models self-effacement and modesty, a paragon of inwardness and receptivity, being tsanua and a makabal. These qualities are emphasized in the feminine Salam elokim. In his majestic transcendence HaKadosh Baruch Hu appears as Kel Shaka'i, God Almighty who created and governs the world bestowed and teaches Torah to Klai Yisrael a paragon of leadership and influence being a Mashpia. These qualities are emphasized in the masculine Tzalam Elokim. The, the Rav's identification and exposition of these two Tzalam Elokim's relies heavily on teachings from Kabbalah. Most assuredly, Kabbalah is an esoteric discipline and entree into its portals is reserved for the elite. At first glance, it might seem inappropriate to draw upon Kabbalistic lore in an exoteric, halachic discussion of Masorah and the role of the Jewish woman. Understanding at least one dimension of the relationship of Halacha and Kabbalah will, in Hashem, dispel this erroneous impression and account for the exoteric relevance of the Rav's exposition. On one level, Kabbalah simply, in quotes, provides a deeper understanding of Halacha. It delves. On one level, Kabbalah simply provides a deeper understanding of halocha. It delves into the conceptual, metaphysical underpinnings of concrete normative halocha. Consider the, the following analogy. Electric appliances come with instructions for safe, responsible use with explicit warnings about dangerous misuse. These instructions allow the, the consumer to safely use the appliances. Only with a knowledge of physics, however, is it possible to understand the scientific underpinnings of the instructions. The, the, the analog is clear. In our context, the contours of the respective roles of men and women emerge clearly from halachic sources. By providing insight into the underpinnings of the various halachas, Kabbalah helps us better understand and appreciate halacha. Let's turn to some representative halachic sources. The Torah associates the mitzvah of peri of of procreation with conquest, Based on this association between *peri v'rivia* and *vichiv shuha*, between procreation and conquest, Chazal see the mitzvah of *peri as being incumbent only upon men, inasmuch as it's the nature of aggressive man, not reticent woman, to engage in conquest. The mitzvah of honoring one's parents is incumbent upon men and women. Nevertheless, the Torah associates it primarily with men. Chazal comment, Ish ima tiro kol mikem tiro <laughs> Married women are often exempted from the mitzvah of the aim because they are subject to the authority of others, i.e. when it conflicts with her responsibilities to her husband. According to the Rambam, only men can be appointed to positions of s'mara authority. Ein ma'amid an isha be malchus shenamar som tosim olecha melech velomalka v'chein kol m'simoshev yisrael. All appointments to positions of authority ein memanin b'hem ela ish. Within the reciprocal, bilateral obligations that husband and wife have towards each other. A husband is obligated to go out and provide a livelihood for his wife. Reciprocally, the wife shoulders domestic responsibilities. The missioning etc. She grinds the flour, bakes That launders the clothing, cooks. The halachic lines delineating the different personae and roles of men and women, respectively, are clearly drawn. The Kabbalistic teachings regarding masculine and feminine selim alukim broaden our perspective, enrich our understanding, and deepen our appreciation for the halachic structure. But clearly, in this context, Kabbalah is interpreting halachic norms, not generating its own. In the words of the Rav, commenting upon a and Masachas Kidushin, Rav Yosef, Ki Shoma Kalkari De'imei Oma Eikub Mekam Da Asya. Whenever Rav Yosef heard the footsteps of his mother, he would say, let me rise because the Shchina is coming. The Rav comments, behind every mother, young or old, happy or sad, trails the Shekhinah. And behind every father, erect or stooped, in playful or stern mood, walks Malka Kadisha, the Holy King. This is not mysticism, it's halacha. The awareness of Malka Kadisha and the Shekhinah result in the obligation to rise before father and mother. The foregoing depiction of the Jewish woman, of the feminine Solomon al-Kim, culled from the Rav's writings, despite being limited to a representative sampling, draws from an incredibly broad and comprehensive array of sources. Biblical, halachic, and kabbalistic sources converge. They paint a single, consistent, and beautiful picture. The complementary antinomies of public and private Mekabel and Mashpiyah, Aggressive and reticent, Gvura and Rachmonos, Pesach Ohel and Ohel, depict the respective roles and strengths of men and women. I, I've been asked to, to comment upon the consensus omnium amongst all gedolim, past and present, That ordination of women violates halacha. So, be'ezus Hashem, I now try to turn to that task. At the outset of our discussion, we noted the pivotal role of values and principles within our Masora, both bris ovos as well as bris sinai. The eternal universal relevance and applicability of Torah depends upon applying Masoretic values and principles to new situations. The mandate of Tzniyus is always operative. Standards of Tzniyus must be adhered to in both the religious and secular spheres. And accordingly, guidance must be sought as to what is mutter and what also, what appropriate and what inappropriate for women in the secular sphere as well. The the ensuing comments are not intended in any way to imply what those guidelines are. That's beyond, uh, beyond, beyond the circumscription of tonight's topic. Nevertheless, there are at least two crucial defining differences between the two spheres, between the religious and the secular sphere. First of all, the religious sphere is real in a sense that the secular is not. There's no analogy whatsoever between the show and the corporate boardroom. Whatever meaningfulness, if any, roles and positions in the boardroom possess, they don't in the least compare to the significance of roles and positions in the Torah community. Behavior in the religious sphere most directly upholds or violates the Torah's axiomatic gender differentiation in avodas Hashem. Thus the question of women serving as CEOs is not linked to the question of women being ordained and/or serving as rabbis. Second of all, regardless of the sincere Lashem shemayim motivation of some individual women who aspire to serve as rabbis, the broader religio social context is crucial. Let's be honest and straightforward with ourselves. There is currently an undeniable concerted effort afoot to egalitarianize Yahadu The profane roots of this antinomian movement reach back to the 1970s with the demands for Sifrei Torah for women during Hakafis and women's Tevila groups. Ordination of women is one of the more recent fronts in that misguided effort. In light of all of the above, we're Zohar to understand and appreciate the authoritative position of all gedolim. Of course, its authoritativeness doesn't depend upon our oft-times inadequate understanding. It's overwhelmingly clear that a woman serving in the very public religious leadership role of rabbi directly violates and contradicts the entire masorah. Concerning the Jewish woman, concerning the Tzalam Elukim of Zacho Nekevo Bara In an attempt to be Hashem forestall misunderstanding, two further points must be underscored. Firstly, by no means am I implying that Masora is, quote, the only, unquote, impediment to having women rabbis. I comment from the Masoretic vantage point, because as requested, that vantage point has been the focus of our discussion. Moreover, the claim that the possibility of women rabbis represents a new and unprecedented situation is somewhat dubious. Formal schooling and instruction for Jewish girls is relatively new. Instances of remarkably learned Jewish women are not. Most famously, Buria, wife of Rabbi daughter of Eb Hanina was a very great Torah scholar who was Machria, who adjudicated a dispute between Rabbi Tarfan and the Chacham. Rabbinic literature and lore through the centuries knows of other remarkable instances as well. And yet, the existence of such eminent, learned Noshim Tznuos, Vitzit Konyos, Never yielded women rabbis, or even a suggestion, therefore. The politically incorrect, yet historically correct explanation would seem to be simple. It was self evident that such a development was unthinkable, as it contradicts the Torah's religious gender differentiation. Communal introspection is vital. And to be candid, long overdue. With open minds and hearts, please join me. We tend to think of assimilation in concrete, practical terms someone eating treif, being Machal Shabbos, <laughs> etc., Rahman al-Litzlan. And obviously, such behaviors are painful instances of assimilation. But assimilation often begins more subtly. It often begins in the realm of thought, ideas and values. Practical assimilation with its frightening manifestations is often the result of ideational and axiological assimilation. (coughs) Ideational assimilation occurs when we absorb ideas and values antithetical to Torah from the surrounding culture. Often these ideas and values penetrate our minds and hearts imperceptibly by osmosis. Having penetrated our minds, they dictate our mindset. Sometimes the infection of assimilation reaches so deeply within our being that we mistake transient Western societal values for absolute universal values. And then we proceed to zealously, self-righteously reinterpret, in reality misinterpret, Torah accordingly. To be specific, Western society is aggressively egalitarian. It equates equality with uniformity and conversely diversity with inequality. This Western social axiom stands in marked contrast to the traditional Jewish view. In the words of the Rav, the halacha has discriminated between axiological equality pertaining to their divine essence and metaphysical uniformity at the level of the existential personal experience. Men and women are different personae endowed with singular qualities and assigned distinct missions in life. Hence, axiological equality should not level up the uniqueness of these two sexual personalities. Another truism. Over the past half century, Western society has denigrated traditional women's roles, attributing them to a misogynist, patriarchal society. Once again, the Rav has formulated the Torah outlook. The narrative in the Bible that both male and female were created in the image of God suffices to refute the misogynist tradition. The Bible sees the uniqueness of man expressed in his ability to withdraw, to sacrifice, in his giving of himself to others, in his craving for communion with God. Therefore, there is hardly any cogent reason to place the worth of man above that of woman. On the contrary, sacrificial action is more characteristic of woman than of man. Both of these axiomatic Western values, that is egalitarianism and denigration of traditional women's roles, have infiltrated and infected our minds and hearts. They represent insidious ideational assimilation, deeply disturbing and entirely intolerable in its own right, but they're also fueling practical assimilation and if unchecked, will continue to do so, Rahman, al and at a frightening pace. Let's step back for a moment and, and reflect. Obviously, there's never any reason whatsoever to feel apologetic, insecure or inferior in openly rejecting transient societal mores and axioms in favor of Retzan Hashem. But a moment's reflection will Ezra Hashem strengthen our Yetzahatov Hatov in combating the Yetzirah. Without minimizing the accomplishments or virtues of modern society, an objective assessment is simply staggering. In the realm of intimacy, where above all, kedusha is to be sought and realized, popular Western culture rejects chastity and sanctity in favor of vulgarity and promiscuity. Western culture rejects snius in favor of ostentatiousness. It rejects self-effacement in favor of self-aggrandizement It rejects busha, shame, in favor of shamelessness. It rejects moral religious discipline, the bedrock of halacha, in favor of self-gratification. It rejects inwardness and authenticity in favor of extroversion and empowerment. Obviously, such a society cannot appreciate the sanctified lifestyle of Tzniyus. Obviously, such a society cannot understand or appreciate the feminine Salam Elokim. But Bnei Yisrael HaBashonim, and we have the Torah Dosha, we can appreciate authentic Torah values. Why do we allow ourselves to be brainwashed and assimilate? And why even when we appropriately reject what a nation of women, why do we ourselves, why do we do ourselves the disservice of constantly talking about increasing leadership roles for women as though that were an ideal? Such talk only reinforces ideational assimilationist tendencies. Instead of such short-sighted accommodationism, we should be accurately and and effectively and proudly projecting the Torah's beautiful vision of Tzni and Avodash Hashem. In our generation, surrounded as we are by self-aggrandizement and extroversion, every single one of us should commit to memory and etch in our hearts the following passage from Ephraim Vital Share Kedusha Huraos Maasav making one's good deeds known to others. Gratuitous seeking gratuitous publicity and recognition for what one does. Yadata Masha Uml Khazal, you know what Chazal have said about a woman who was being punished in Gehennem, she was being punished in Gehennem for telling her friends, you know, today I fasted. I was fasting today. Not only does that undermine one's mitzvah that one loses one forfeits the sechar but rachmanu one is judged in geheimim ki megale by looking for public attention hare megale Daito, a person thereby indicates she'ein the Shem shemayim if my audience is people it means my audience isn't the shalolam the im Yochul what's the ideal, says Rupaim Vital, Imyochul Ha'odum Shiyasa Kol the Rochal the If a person could arrange it, that he does everything, the Shaym Shamayim, Velo Ya Faresh Rabiya Safilu Maham, and people won't be aware of anything. People won't be aware of any element of the person's Avod Sashem, Sharokul Mukhupal. That person's reward is, is compounded many times over. The way one gives honor to is by keeping things hidden. It's undoubtedly true that being called upon to resist such societal influences poses an additional challenge to the modern Jewish woman in devoting herself to authentic Avodah Hashem. Undoubtedly, it was with this additional challenge in mind that the Rav penned the following lines. The biblical woman is modest, humble, self-effacing. She enters the stage when she is called upon, acts her part with love and devotion in a dim corner of the stage, and then leaves softly without applause and without the enthusiastic response of the audience which is hardly aware of her. It's quite interesting that although Avram survived Sarah by 38 years, his historical role came to an end with Sarah's passing. Yitzchak leaves the stage together with Rivka. Yaakov relinquishes his role to Yosef with the untimely death of Rachel. Without Sarah there would be no Avram, no Yitzchak were it not for Rivka, no Yaakov without Rachel. The halacha was cognizant of the greatness of the covenantal mother when it formulated the rule that Kedushas Yisrael, one's status as a Jew, can only be transmitted through the woman. The halacha was also conscious of the loneliness and the tragic note in the feminine commitment when it accepted a seemingly contradictory rule that the child takes his father's name and family status. We conclude with one last quote from the Rav. The specific context was an initiative to try and obviate the need for Gitan. The mindset which produced that initiative is hauntingly familiar. The excerpt that we, in Yetzirah Hashem, are about to read together addresses that mindset. We must not yield, I mean emotionally, it is very important. We must not feel inferior, experience or develop an inferiority complex. And because of that complex, yield to the charm Usually it's a transient and passing charm of modern political and ideological svaras. I say not only not to compromise, certainly not to compromise, but even not to yield emotionally, not to feel inferior, not to experience an inferiority complex. The thought should never occur that it's important to cooperate just a little bit with the modern trend or with the secular modern philosophy. In my opinion, Yahadus does not have to apologize to the modern woman. There is no need for apology. We should have pride in our masorah, in our heritage. And of course, certainly it goes without saying that one must try not to compromise with these cultural trends and one must try not to gear the halakhic norm to the transient ways of a neurotic society, which is what our society is.